The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and you know, it's the middle of the summer, and I'm in a nostalgic mood, at least today I am. And so let me just play this. Who among you, especially if you're male and at this point of a certain age, doesn't have a certain kind of response to this. Just just listen. Remember what that was? That is the closing theme music to Isis. Remember, Oh Mighty Isis? Not what we think of with Isis now, but if it's 1975, then there was that cheesy live action show that would come on on Saturday mornings after the cartoons. It it was a companion series to Shazam, which was about Captain Marvel. And Joanna Cameron played Isis. And if you were around 11 or 12 at the time, then it gave you the first taste of feelings that were basically going to wreck the rest of your life. I'm talking about puberty and I'm not alone. I've looked online. This was a common response. But the reason I'm beginning with that wonderful music to Isis, where when I hear that now, it immediately gives me all of these, we might say, feels, is because... After that, for me, in my mind, is something like this. Listen to this commercial from 1976. Now, Fantastic Spray Cleaner with the adjustable Easy Trigger Sprayer introduces a big new money-saving extra, this economical half-gallon refill. It fills your fantastic bottle not just once, not just twice, but almost three times. Ounce for ounce, it's like getting one full bottle free. Extra savings and the adjustable easy trigger sprayer. Only Fantastic gives you both. Fantastic spray cleaner. It's fantastic. It's that cleanser. It still exists. And the reason that I associate those things is because the way it went in my house was that I got to gorge myself on cartoons on Saturday morning. And then you would top it off with Isis. That was later in the morning. I think in Philadelphia, it was at 11, maybe 11.30. And then after that, it was time to do the chores. And one of the chores that I was responsible for was cleaning the bathrooms. And what we used was fantastic. And I don't know why my mother chose that. But that means that I think of Isis, puberty, and then the smell of that cleanser, fantastic cleanser. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The word fantastic is a very rich one. I think about it often. And so today, it's going to be all about fantastic. Not that silly cleanser, but just the word fantastic. There's so much in it. And why fantastic? Because of a certain lesson that I'm fond of, which is that there's a whole world 
in each word and not just what language the word happened to be borrowed from, but so much more. A word is a world. I wonder if that little slogan could catch on. No, it's not. It's not a book because if you think about it, I could choose 50 words and after about the sixth word, you'd be bored. It's not a book. It's a podcast subject, but it would be nice if people would think, you know, t-shirts or something. It should be a song and I'm going to try to write it, but a word is a world and fantastic is one of those things. For one thing, it's the way the word has evolved. And so, for example, the Henry James novel, Novelette, Washington Square. It is most often enjoyed these days. I get the feeling through either the stage or the film version called The Heiress, which adopts it and changes it in certain ways. It's considered fashionable to dismiss the modern day film called Washington Square with Jennifer Jason Lee. I don't think that's correct. It's actually very good on its own terms. It's more faithful to the book. And Jennifer Jason Lee is not as mannered as she often is. She absolutely nails Catherine Sloper. In any case, what's interesting in that book, among other things, is the use of the word fantastic. And so Henry James is using the word fantastic, and there'll be something like a reference to Aunt Peniman. And Aunt Peniman is annoying. She's a kind of a gossipy, interfering, flibberty gibbet. She's played by Judith Ivey in the newer movie, or frankly, a little better, Miriam Hopkins in the old one. She's that kind of person. And at one point, what is it? Morris, the bad boy. Morris is described by James as saying it would have gratified him to tell her she was a fantastic old woman, a fantastic old woman. He didn't mean it as a compliment. Aunt Peniman is frankly annoying. What he means is that she makes stuff up, that she's creating stories. The closest equivalent in modern English would be fantastical. But it would have gratified him to tell her she was a fantastic old woman. That's the way James uses fantastic. And it goes further back than Henry James. You have to be very careful with the word fantastic when you read old things. And so, for example, Boswell. James Boswell at one point is describing the actor David Garrick. And David Garrick is knocking a certain woman. The woman, in fact, is Samuel Johnson's wife who was significantly older than him and more to the point, was actually kind of a Peniman-esque figure. And apparently David Garrick said that this woman was, quote-unquote, flaring and fantastic in her dress. Now, once again, Garrick didn't mean, ooh, fantastic. He means that she was kind of overdoing it, that there was something kind of fantastical today, roughly what the kids are using extra to mean in the way she dressed. So fantastic had to do with fantasy, not in the sense of, well, fantastic, as in excellent. That only starts, that's officially dated in 1938. Of course, it wouldn't have been exactly that year, but it's a latter-day sense of fantastic to mean just great. And that actually is still transitional in, for example, early TV. Beautiful example is the Twilight Zone, where the word comes up now and then. The example I'm going to use, there are others, but we're in 1959 or maybe the beginning of 1960. And there's the episode, actually, they're fans of the show to the point that I'll say, it's long live Walter Jameson. And this is the one where there's the guy who looks like he's in his 30s, who never ages, and he's about to marry a woman and her father figures out the secret. You know, the actor who played that guy, you always look at him and you think he looks familiar, but you can't place who he is. He was Mary McCarthy's brother. That's who he is. 
Picture Mary McCarthy with male hair and smoking a pipe, and it's him. That's who played the part. But in any case, this is Long Live Walter Jameson, and listen to something that the father says to the protagonist and how he uses the word fantastic. I've suspected a long time, but it seemed fantastic. Mm, it is. Yes. How old are you, Walter? So, of course, he didn't mean that it would be excellent. He means that it's fantastical. That's something that you hear in early TV. You hear it in old radio. It continues for a while. We nowadays just think of it as fantastic as in, oh, my goodness. And that cleanser certainly was not originally named with the idea being that these bubbles and suds make you think of something interesting, or at least I hope they weren't. The idea was that this stuff is fantastic. It gets the sludge off, which it did, except it wasn't great on the ring around the tub. I remember I had to use something else, Bon Ami or something. But in any case, even nowadays, you can find some people, the highly literate antiquarian types who will salute the old meaning. So for example, if you don't have anything to do in the fall, there happens to be a wonderful biography of Susan Sontag coming out. And for reasons I won't bore you with, I happen to have read it. And at one point, the author of it, Benjamin Moser, says, the greater her success, the more fantastic Sontag's descriptions become. Fantastic as in fantasy. Moser has to flag it. And it's interesting that he'd use it that way. And, you know, really, I don't know Moser, but it says on the back flap that he makes his life in Europe. And I suspect that French might help him in thinking of fantastic as having to do with fantasy today, because in French, you can still use fantastique that way. But in English, really, unless you're thinking really hard and spending too much time with dictionaries, fantastic means it's great. Very Tony the Tiger. So fantastic is interesting, partly because not so long ago, it was used with a different meaning. And you have to think about it if you want to understand what people are saying or else you get one of those Shakespearean bumps where you think you understand, but you don't. Then also, the idea of a word going from a negative meaning, a pejorative meaning, to a positive meaning. So something being fantastical as in, come on, knock it off, don't be so extra, to fantastic as being, that's great, this almost gets the ring out of the tub. Ameliorative, in other words, for something to go from bad to good, that's the exception, actually. Generally, not always, but the tendency is that words tend to go bad. Words tend to rot, like fruit. I don't want that to be the slogan. Don't put that on a shirt. But actually, the pejorative is more usual. And so, for example, artificial. Charles II, interesting king, at one point is reported to have said when he saw St. Paul's Cathedral, which was, of course, new at the time, that it was artificial. And he meant that as a compliment, as in, wow, it really does, you know, improvise upon the mundane. The artifice is creative. He meant roughly that it, it, it's creative. It's Baroque, although it would have been a little late to say that. Artificial. Now, some of you, some of you antiquarians out there are waiting for me to say that he also said that the castle was awful and pompous. Actually, that's not apparently what he said. He just said artificial. But the idea that he said awful and meant it as a compliment is based on an accurate reading of what awful meant then. Awful then meant what awesome 
does now. And there's just been a switch. Nobody could say why. But awful was like, oh, God, like Chris Farley would have said, remember that time in that movie when you said blah, blah, blah? That was awful. That's what Chris Farley would have said back in the 16 and 1700s. But it was awesome by the time he was alive. And pompous, same thing. If you said something was pompous at that time, you meant that it was grand. You were thinking about something by a handle or something like that. It was actually from Greek, and the Greek word was pompe, and it just meant kind of a solemn procession, kind of like that sort of thing. And really, if you think about it, pomp and circumstance, the pomp in pomp and circumstance, you don't think of it as necessarily a dismissive word. By pomp and circumstance, you imagine something going by at a slow, steady pace, and that meaning something that brings tears to people who look kind of like Winston Churchill. That's what you think of pomp meaning. Pompous was the same thing. You know, instead of my silly music, I want you to listen to something that I think pompous meant at the time. William Walton is a, was a British classical composer, never quite got his due. We don't give a damn about him over here. But he wrote this one thing called Crown Imperial that I like to play for people because when I got my doctorate at the graduation ceremony at Stanford, they happened to play this. And I remember sitting there in the hot sun thinking, I really like that song. And everybody else is, you know, throwing their mortar boards and urinating and doing all the things people do at those ceremonies. I was listening to this Crown Imperial and I've always remembered it. This is how it goes. This is is pompous to Charles II. And it's a pretty piece. Just listen to that for those of you out there who happen to be music geeks. Listen, I like the pedal point. one more, obnoxious. Obnoxious used to mean that you were subject to harm. It meant that you were in danger. You were, I don't know why I think of Little Bo Peep, but you were Little Bo Peep tied to the railroad tracks or something like that, obnoxious. But because there was the word noxious, which meant the same thing that it does now, the word got contaminated and obnoxious came to mean basically noxious in a social sense. And so there was this pejorative tendency. Obnoxious used to be a word of concern. And now it's a word that you use to heap contempt upon someone. As late as 1926, talk about plummy British people, Henry Fowler, in his Guide to English. We pay more attention, unfortunately, to Strunk and White. I did an episode about that. Newbies, please listen to that one from way back. But if you are British or were British or even are British, the one you're more likely to attend to is by Fowler, knowing these days that it's written from a long time ago. But many people seem to think that he has a certain stake in kidney pie, good sense about English. 1926, this is what he said about obnoxious. He said, Obnoxious has two very different senses, one of which, exposed or open or liable to attack or injury, requires notice because its currency is now so restricted that it is puzzling to the uninstructed. It is the word's rightful or de jure meaning, and we may hope that scholarly writers will keep it alive. Well, you know, they just didn't. And today, obnoxious means what obnoxious means, so that you have a 
Fats Waller performance like this one. This is from the Broadway show based on his songs, Ain't Misbehavin'. From 1978, those of you who don't like the show clips, you might actually like this. This is Ken Page doing a number that Fats Waller was famous for doing on record. It's called Your Feet's Too Big, and it uses the word obnoxious in a way that has always been seared delightfully into my memory, just like the theme song music to Isis. Ah, when you go and die, ain't nobody gonna stop. Undertaker's gonna have quite a job. <laughs> you gonna look funny when they lay in the casket. <laughs> look at them big feet sticking up out the basket. All oh, your feet's too big. Fantastic is interesting partly because of just how its meaning has changed and how its meaning has actually changed somewhat against what's the usual current. But there's more. And it actually gets into something that a lot of you ask me about where I always give you half of an answer. Well, here's the real answer. And it does get into where fantastic came from. Depending on how far back you want to go, fantastic goes back to a Greek word, fantastikos. And as you might spontaneously imagine, fantastikos was spelled with a P-H. Fantastikos meant to make visible, ultimately, if you trace it a little further back in Greek than that. And so you can see how that would come to mean fantastic. But what about the spelling? What is the P-H? Why is P-H F? It's actually kind of a miracle to watch somebody learning to read and to see them internalizing that sort of thing. Oh, quick, cute story. My younger daughter, last weekend, we were in St. Louis, and she took a drink of water. And I don't know where she got this. She yelled, this water tastes yucky. It tastes like Philadelphia water, as in PH Philadelphia, because I'm from Philadelphia. And we have mentioned that Philadelphia has traditionally had a certain water problem. And I'm allowed to say it because I'm from there. Let's face it. There's that taste. And for some reason, she thought St. Louis water tasted that way. This tastes like Philadelphia water. And everybody laughed. The P-H. Well, what is that? Because why can't it just be a F? And how does P spell F? It's a weird little story. It makes perfect sense. It's because you go step by step by step and things don't change. And next thing you know, everything's all fucked up. <laughs> fucked up spelled P-H-U. And so that is is something that begins with this. Ooh, you've got to have a little bit of introduction to linguistics here, but I'll take you through it as briskly as I can. Suppose you say pot and then you say spot. So pot, spot. Now you're thinking, well, they both have a P. Yeah, but actually the P's are kind of different. If you say pot and you put your hand in front of your mouth, you might get a little bit of vapor upon your hand, pot like that. Now, if you put your hand in front of your face and say spot, notice that that p isn't as wet. It doesn't pop as much. So there's a difference between p and p. p and p. That sounds like nothing in English. But those sorts of things can matter because in some languages, those are processed as different sounds. So in some languages, pot 
would be one word and bot would be another. Listen again. Pot, bot. Pot, bot. So pot might mean the thing you cook in. Bot might mean air conditioner. That's how actually a lot of languages work. I've discussed that sort of thing in reference to other languages on the show before. Greek, ancient Greek, was one of those languages. You had p and p. Now, p is what we now call phi. P is what we now call pi. You had what we call an aspirated p. That's the spitty one, p. Then an unaspirated one, which was p. P was that you know, think about fraternities, sororities, you have the, the O with the capital I through it. And we think of that as phi, which is getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But back then it was pi. Then for just p, you had the little thing that looks like whatever it looks like, a little table. And that's pi is in that mysterious number that people write whole books about. So there's a difference between pi and pi. Language always changes. So ancient Greek has this situation where there is one letter for p and one letter for p, and they're different things. That's why you have a fraternity like pi, beta, phi, to get ahead of ourselves again. What happened was that p changed to f over time. P didn't. P stayed the same. But p, aspirated p, changed to f. And that may have had something to do with the fact that people in Greece started eating things that were more like grape nuts. Remember the show where we talked about how F becomes more common when human diet changes? But whatever, you had P becoming F, that change. In the same way, in ancient Greek, at first there was T and T. T became Th over time. There was a difference between K and K. K became Th. And then k stayed k. So all this is, is a pattern. But what interests us is this ph thing, because that's what's come down to bother us in English. So in Greek, what began as p becomes f. And that means that their phi symbol, the zero with the capital I through it, is now pronounced f. Now, lots and lots of Greek words were borrowed into Latin. Latin borrowed Greek words. Greek was the prestige language. And so when Greek still had a difference between p and p, the Latins heard that and they wrote the aspirated p, the p, with an h. The h is kind of you know indicating a certain kind of hitch or a puffin sound. So ph as opposed to p. So the difference was between p and p. Like how would you write that difference? They had to come up with something. They came up with that. Over time in Greek, p became f. The Latins could hear it from over the ocean. And so they realized, they understood that words that they wrote as p were now pronounced f, so they pronounced them that way too. But that meant that you had this situation where something written with a p and an h, which meant p, now was f. You just deal with things like that. They happen very gradually. And so it used to be that in English, when we started borrowing words from Latin and Greek, we would try to undo this sort of thing. So, for example, phantom, and you can imagine, you know, phantom is, is a visible thing. It's more of that same fantasy, fantastical root. Phantom in earlier English was spelled with a you know, nice goddamn F. It was F-A-N-T-O-N. That looks to us like a misspelling now because in the late 1600s, there were certain people who were so in love with classical learning that they thought that our spelling needed to reflect this classical learning. And so phantom, which was spelled in a way that 
you know, a, a small person or a foreigner could easily wrap their heads around, was changed to PH because that looked more like Greek and Latin. And so there you go. A lot of that happened. It's a lot of why our spelling is so bad, as people put it. Soldier, really soldier. That's the way people came to say it. And that was good. Soldier is better. It's easier to say. But they stuck an L back in there because people saw that in old books and they figured it needed to stay. There was an episode of Perfect Strangers. Remember the show with um, Bronson Pinchot as Balky, the foreigner. Then he's living with cousin Larry, who's played by Mark Lynn Baker, who, believe it or not, by marriage is a distant cousin of mine. There's a factoid in case I get hit by a bus. But remember that show, Perfect Strangers? I remember on one of them, and I frankly... Do not have the energy to go through every episode of that and find which one of these it was. But Balky, with his non-native English, says, And cousin, without a shadow of a doubt. I thought that was actually the funniest thing on that show ever, of all episodes that I saw. Well, what is that B doing in there anyway? What would doubt? Well, it's because you see that in, for example, Latin's dubitare, etc. And somebody with too much time on their hands, you know, I hope they died of yellow fever, decided to stick that B back in there. And here we are. And so some of the PHs are like that. Not, though, for example, fancy. You'd never know. Fancy is actually related to fantastic. Fancy is a contraction of fantasy, which we now just think of as a real word. Go figure. And fantasy had two meanings that created our usages of fancy. And so a fantasy may be that you have some sort of vision, you have some sort of apparition in your head. And so, of course, you might fancy somebody, as in you have a fantasy of being wit them, so to speak. And so the British person who says, I fancy, that's where that comes from. And then there's also something that is fancy, some kind of fancy, dancy, flouncy sort of thing, because your fantasy of something quite possibly, will be something that improves it. Your fantasy is that something is flouncy and, you know, what people in the old days would have called artificial and meant it as a compliment. And next thing you know, you have fancy things. One of my favorite uses of fancy actually is from a very obscure show tune. This is the Ziegfeld Follies of 1936. This is a review. This is from the days when you could go to the theater and see not only a musical with a story, but you would see just this potpourri that was the direct precursor of what became the TV specials and TV variety shows of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So this is the Ziegfeld Follies, 1936. And Fanny Bryce was in it. Fanny Bryce of Funny Girl. Fanny Bryce of Baby Snooks. Well, that's enough of that. It was a long time ago. But she did a song called Fancy Fancy. That was certainly not recorded. But here is Mary Testa and Peter Scolari. Peter Scolari of Bosom Buddy fame, doing a recreation of it in 1999. I find this number just humorous, and it gets in the fancy, and it allows me to play this once on the show. So there you go. Anthony Eden And did the rumba like Fred Astaire If you played tennis like the King of Sweden And had the figure of Maxi Bell if you could wear top hats like Buchanan And have that Cecil Beaton savoir-faire And charm as no coward does When he says, have you been? Make love as Leslie Howard does When he is on the screen If you 
For the children、um, who might be listening, guess this is going to be kind of a short show. Good night, kids. It's time for you to go to your rooms. You might want to watch ISIS. It is on DVD. Unfortunately, it's preserved in such a quality that it looks like somebody threw up on the film. But you'll learn all sorts of lessons about morality and punctuality and about how bad special effects were long before you were born. ISIS flying—it's like they're hanging her on string. So, in any case, here's our kitty goodnight theme song for the show. Fupa Wupa, John. Yep. So, goodnight, kitties. Bye. Okay. I'm telling the kids goodnight, or you might want to skip about five minutes of this because I need to discuss something else about Fantastic, which involves a certain amount of profanity, and that is that Fantastic has an interesting relationship with fucking. I mean, the word fucking. What I mean by that is how we really use. That word, and so for example, I can't believe I ate the whole fucking thing. That's just you know one way that we might use it. Thing is, you know where to put the fucking. So let's talk about cities. If you're making fun of cities, so this thing with Philadelphia water. Suppose you know my little girl doesn't want to go to Philadelphia. Well, she wouldn't express it this way till I imagine she's about thirteen. But fill a fucking Delphia. Villa fucking Duffy. That's how you would insert fucking into that word. There are papers written about this because to speak English is to know how to do that. Because you wouldn't say Philadelphia fucking Fia. That doesn't work. If anybody said that, you would know that you needed to take them to the hospital. In the same way, Miami. Okay, my fucking Miami. <laughs> no, you would never say that. You're going to Japan. I went to Japan once, and frankly, I had a bad time. And I did go to Tokyo. I would never say that I had a bad time in Tok fucking you, or toe fucking you. See, it doesn't work. I would say fucking Tokyo. I would say, oh Jesus, I've got to go to fucking Miami. You just know how to do it. The way you know how to do it is because there's a certain issue of rhythm. To go a little more technical, it's in the phonology, it's in the meter, but there has to be something heavy on both sides. Phila fucking Delphia. But with Miami, the heavy part is just that am. You don't have anything heavy, so you stick it on the outside and say "fucking Miami." So fill a fucking Delphia, since a fucking natty. If that's what you wanted to say, it actually reminds me of something someone said once. You just listen to things people say. He's smoking a cigarette. It was not Peter Minton. He was in a T-shirt, and it was a whole situation that I don't have time to get into. But he had just been to Indianapolis, and I said, "Well, how's Indianapolis?" And you know what would anybody actually ever say to that in general? Because you know, God bless Indianapolis, but you know, let's face it. And he said, "You know, it was actually a nice little fuck of a town." And I thought that's a nice way of putting it, especially because based on my one time there, that is exactly what it is. It is a nice little fuck of a town. In any case, if you want to know more about this word, it's my first plug: nine nasty words. It's a book that will be coming out. In the fall of 2020, written by me, nine nasty words, and of course, F-U-C-K is one of them. But in any case, notice this: mendacious, fantastic. They have the same rhythm. Mendacious, you're a liar. Fantastic, you are. You're spraying something into the tub. But notice, you know what he was? He was men fucking dacious. No, no, no. He was fucking mendacious. If you were gonna. Call somebody fucking mendacious, which you wouldn't, but still, he was fucking mendacious. Not he was men fucking mendacious. If somebody said men fucking mendacious, you'd assume that they were from Prague. They learned English last night, and you tell them that doesn't quite work. But notice, fan fucking tastic. That works somehow. It works. Men fucking mendacious. No, 
Fan-fucking-tastic, yes. And it's because we often say fantastic in a slightly eccentric way. We emphasize the fan, and it's because we associate it now with this, you know, the spurt of positivity. Fantastic. I used to know a guy good 30 years ago now, and you'd say, how are you doing? And he would always say, fantastic. And, you know, you could tell there was a certain 12-steppy way that he was saying it. You could tell he was not fantastic. He was kind of like Gill on The Simpsons. There was kind of this constipated tear, which actually reminds me of something, constipated passion. Sondheim, Stephen Sondheim, never writes a bad song. But every now and then, one of them doesn't quite fit where it was put. And one of those is, and when I'm talking about Sondheim, I consider myself to be talking about God. But there's a song of his that just did not work where it was put and was because of this constipated passion. It's a song called The Game. And at this point in this musical, which at the time was called Bounce, now it's called Roadshow, this was a song that was supposed to convey that somebody was excited about gambling and that life is a gamble and that you're on the edge. And it's a wonderful song. I love every note, every chord, every lyric, but gosh, it doesn't sound passionate. It doesn't sound chancy. It doesn't sound like anybody's excited. The only game it sounds like is backgammon. And well, there you go. Nevertheless, this is Howard McGillan singing in 2003. The song is called The Game. This is from Bounce. I love it to pieces, but wrong in the show. One day lose, the next day win. Nothing goes as planned. When you feel like giving in comes a brand new hand. What you've lost, that's where you've been Long as you keep moving Things will keep improving Prospects will expand Okay, Papa, now I understand It's more than just the money, it's the game The thing that really matters is the game That moment when the card is dealt and nothing is the same The only thing that matters is the game Better than sex, better than booze Beating ace high with a pair of twos Better to win, but if you lose, you've had your moment It's more than just the money that's at stake That's nice, but it's just icing on the cake It's your life, every part Who you are, not what you've got Without a risk, the world seems pretty tame Anyway, where did fantastic come from? Well, have to get into it. Proto-Indo-European, that language spoken in Ukraine. Notice I didn't say the Ukraine. In Ukraine, probably 7,000 years ago or so. The dates on that change every 10 seconds. I'll just say 7,000. Well, the fan and the fantastic apparently goes back to a root that was ba. Not ba, but ba. There was that difference in Proto-Indo-European too. And so aspirated ba not aspirated, ba. So it goes back to ba. There weren't very many ba's in Proto-Indo-European for some reason, but there were ba's. Now, f, we have f now, but remember it goes back to what was originally a p, a nice aspirated p, and the root is b. But p and b are really variations on the same sound. We call p voiceless, b Voiced, I find that terminology extremely clumsy, but that's because I miss certain things. But think about it. If you were a kid, remember that game, one potato, two potato, three potato, four? Notice that nobody said it 
like that. Nobody said, oh, one potato, <laughs> two potato. That wasn't it. And I remember that at least the kids that I remember saying it in Philadelphia, it would always kind of come out one potato, do potato, three potato, four, instead of potato, p, but they're the same sound. It happens in your mouth spontaneously. And that means that this book became not only fantastic, but it's in banner. And think a banner is, you know, probably pretty bright. A banner is rarely going to say everybody go to hell. Or beacon, it's going to boop, 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 something that's flashing. It's epiphany, epiphany. If you have an epiphany, then, you know, a light bulb goes off. Also photo, it's all about light. So fantastic, which is about a mental image, is like photo, which is an image. These things just go on and on. I have more to say about fantastic. For example... I remember being a kid. This is around ISIS time. There was a, a Looney Tune, a bad one that need not be consulted. It was called Lights Fantastic. Lights Fantastic. And it was about neon. There were jokes about advertising and things like that. Lights Fantastic. And I remember thinking, why is it called that? Why isn't it called Fantastic Lights? And then isn't that kind of a boring title for this anyway? You know, boring cartoon, but you only make it worse by calling it Fantastic Lights. But what's Lights Fantastic? And well, you know, it's the 70s and there was no internet and nobody around me cared. And so that was just it. But then you kept hearing this lights, fantastic, light, fantastic thing. Another Looney Tune. This is Cuckoo Nut Grove. And there are lots of celebrity caricatures. And the person who is saying this is Ben Bernie, not Jack Benny. Ben Bernie, who was a star band leader with a certain suave, actually Jack Benny-ish personality. He was famous in the 30s. He didn't live long. But at the time, he would have been as recognizable as Howard Stern, roughly. Listen to what he says to introduce the segment of the evening where everybody starts dancing. And now let us indulge in a bit of the light fantastic, etc., etc. What? What do you mean, the light fantastic? That? What kind of English is that? At best, it sounds Shakespearean. What does it have to do with dancing? I always wondered about that. And then another example. Broadway musical, rather forgettable, Wish You Were Here. We're in the early 50s, and there's uh, an unnecessary dance number. Listen to the lyric. What is tripping the light fantastic? Why do you say that? Well, it turns out, listen to Milton. And he didn't know from Broadway musicals, but Milton says at one point, come and trip it as ye go on the light fantastic toe. <laughs> Let's keep it with that unplaceable, slightly northern accent. So come and trip it as ye go on the light fantastic toe. So that's what he said. So on the light fantastic toe. So tripping is like <laughs> kind of dancing. And then on the light, fantastic toe. So your toe is light 
And then if it's fantastic, I doubt if it means that it's a beautifully formed toe. But the idea is that the toe is capable of expressing the fantastical. And so this is making dance into something rather magical, which sometimes it can be. And so even later, 1803, there's a newspaper that says a splendid ball was also given where the consul himself tripped it on the light fantastic toe. So that was the expression, the light fantastic toe. And so what it means is that light fantastic is a shortening. It's kind of like the big muddy when you mean the big muddy river. So the big muddy river becomes, ah, the big muddy. And the light fantastic toe becomes light fantastic. And pretty soon people are saying tripping the light fantastic and not even thinking about the fact that it has no literal meaning. You just say it as a chunk. I'm not going to play Pete Seeger singing that the big muddy song because, you know, if you're old enough to remember it, you've got that in your head. And if you're not old enough to remember it, you're going to wonder why I'm playing it. Instead, let's let's have some Nat King Cole. I don't do enough of him. And he's going to be singing The Sidewalks of New York, which is now a 125-year-old song. But here's where you start hearing Light Fantastic just used by itself. You may know this song. Have you ever thought about the fact that you don't know what Light Fantastic means? Now you do. Here's Nat King Cole singing it. side, west side, all around the town. The tots sang ring a rosy, London Bridge is falling down. Boys and girls together, me and Mamie O'Rourke, trip the light fantastic on the sidewalks of New so our lesson from fantastic is that a word is a world. And by the way, slate plus this time is something that will absolutely curl your hair, or I could say to curl your toes, but that tends to be associated with something where I don't think it's going to be as interesting as that. It will curl your hair. It's as good as, remember that thing last year with Yanny and Laurel? This is just about as good as that, but you can only listen to it if you get Slate Plus. Don't forget to sign up for Slate Plus if you want to hear things like this, because that way you get to listen to these extra little materials. It's the same sort of stuff, but you can only hear it if you sign up for this extra part. It's only $35 for the first year, and you'll be helping support not only me doing this show, but the other Slate podcasts, of which there are many. So think about it, and if you think about it the right way, you'll sign up now at slate.com slash lexicon plus. But in the meantime, let's go out on some Dan. I'm saying that because it conveys that, you know, there's supposed to be this connection between Steely Dan and weed, or I guess we're supposed to say cannabis now. So this is technically Donald Fagan, but you know, whatever. This is from the latest edition of their work. This is Miss Marlene, which I think is one of the two best songs on sunken condos. And talking about expressions that sound odd later, like light fantastic, let me help now. The first lyric in this talks about back in 007. Back in 007. Nobody was saying 007, folks, in the future. That is not how we refer to it. Some people said 27 and confused everybody. Most of us said 2007. Most of us are about to switch over and start saying 2020. Nobody walked around saying, well, here we are in 007. Or if they did, boy, they successfully avoided me. 
In any case, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Did you know that tab still exists? Same can. I found it at a supermarket and I bought a can. Perplexed the cashier. Bought a can. I'm sure as hell not going to open it because I remember when my mother used to drink it in the 70s while I was discovering new things about myself while watching ISIS. You could pour that stuff out on a pavement and dig a hole. It was so corrosive. But people drank it because apparently it helped you lose weight. It still exists. Not in a redesigned can with an armadillo on it or something like that. It's the same can. And so I have it sitting in my living room, pink and unopened. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. And I am John McWhorter. That's when you always shine. The ball would ride a moon.